Welcome to episode 46 of the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for I'm the show's producer, and I'm here with Wait, 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 this isn't working. Maybe we should go back to the unredacted introduction. Yeah? Okay. Take two. Welcome to episode 46 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with Justice Center lawyer, Hatem Keir. And if you get my opening joke about redactions, then you probably watched an awful lot of the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings that have been going on in Ottawa since October 13th. These concluded this past Friday with the testimony of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Redactions and unredactions of documents from the Government of Canada played a major part of the story in the final week. And my guest, Adam Keir, lawyer for the Justice Centre, was there, with a front row seat, one of the counsel in the room, sometimes cross-examining witnesses. He was also doing daily video updates. So now we're going to ask him to start here by giving us an update on this very dramatic final few days. Adam, how did the last week go? Uh, I'd say things, uh, they went well. Um, the last week was an interesting one because obviously at this point we're at the highest level of officials and all the on-the-ground facts have already been established. We've heard from the police officers, the protesters, people who live in Ottawa. So now we're getting to the, the point of trying to understand how that information got fed up to the uh, to cabinet and how they made their decision. Uh, there is a bit of a limitation on that because there's a rule called the cabinet confidence that allows deliberations among ministers to be kept secret. They did waive it insofar as it applies to the information they received, but not as it applies to their actual discussions amongst themselves. So it gave us enough to to press on what they knew when they knew it, though there was there is a slight barrier to the, the final level of how they actually came to the decision that they did. Though we did hear a little bit about maybe why they made the decision that they did to invoke the Emergencies Act. Uh, that said, uh, the one kind of, well, there's a lot that came out in the week, but we did finally get to an explanation for the theory of how the Emergency Act standard was met. So the Emergencies Act quotes the CSIS Act, or references it, and says that there must be a threat to the security of Canada as defined in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. You go to the CSIS Act, and the definition has four options, A, B, C, and D. Uh, they were relying on C, which relates to threats, uh, or uh, sorry, acts of serious violence, or threats of acts of serious violence that are motivated by an ideological, religious, or political cause, which is, CSIS refers to that in shorthand as terrorism. Uh, and CSIS was of the belief that, and we heard about some of this in previous weeks when we saw their notes, but basically CSIS didn't think that that threshold was met. But then this Monday, we heard that they actually recommended to cabinet to invoke the emergencies act all the same. And CSIS explained that they made that recommendation because they were reassured on the basis of a legal opinion that the definition has a broader scope under the Emergencies Act than it does under the CSIS Act. Uh, 
And so that same line has been picked up by other, uh, by the politicians that we talk to today. But then that creates kind of an issue because the legal opinion is protected by solicitor client privilege. So, yeah, that was a, I think, uh, the commission counsel Gordon Cameron called it a black box. And, uh, you know, we did, I think, hear a little bit of insight from Trudeau's testimony about what was in that black box. But essentially, no one's really going to know what it is until, I guess, they submit their written legal arguments. And this is after testimony and nobody can be questioned on it. Is that uh, your understanding of it? Yes. In a sense, it's a good thing, though, because the... I'm not a national security expert, but as a lawyer, I can make legal arguments. So if this is a legal, this is a legal move where it's actually they're going to argue it as a matter of law, then that's open up to the, the Justice Center and all the other parties to argue it as a legal point and to argue that, no, actually, the definition is the same as that is in the CSIS Act. And it means the same thing. There's a reason they quoted the CSIS Act. And so it, you can't just hide behind a legal opinion saying that it has a wider scope under the Emergencies Act. So just from what you said there, it sounds like you do get a chance to rebut the legal argument that they make. That was my concern. I thought that maybe they would just submit it and that was it. Nobody could say anything about it. So all the parties are going to make submissions. So uh, you did hear on the last day, the parties got to make five minute closing statements. That's just a summary though. Uh, The parties can submit full close uh, submissions uh, that will be available on the website of the Public Order Emergency Commission. And so we'll have an opportunity to argue that that definition of the CSIS Act wasn't met, that whatever, you know, we don't know the substance of the legal opinion. Canada will make their arguments in their submissions, but all the same, we can argue that that's, uh, I think I heard someone refer to it. I wish I could remember who, but they referred to it as creative legal argument. Uh, and that's maybe mm. a polite way of putting it. It's a very, uh, I, I mean, at the end of the day, they're saying the words don't mean what they mean. And that parliament didn't intend to import the CSIS definition when they referenced the CSIS definition. Actually, I think in one of the um, cross exams, it might have been Karen Zwiebel of uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association that made the argument, well, the threshold can't be any lower because you're talking about, you know, in the CSIS Act, it's about surveilling one person. But when you're talking about, you know, taking it to the level of a whole nation, the the then the uh, interpretation can't be any lower. I don't know whether you think that is a feasible argument or whether I'm describing it properly, but it seemed to me like a, a pretty salient point anyway. Yeah, it was actually uh, Eva Krajewska for the CCLA that put right. that to uh, the Prime Minister, and he actually agreed when it was put to him, which kind of undercuts the the whole statement of that that argument. Right, and yeah, maybe I'll uh, we'll run that quote and then get you to comment on it. Sure. Here is the Prime Minister being cross-examined by Eva Krajewska of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. At the very end of her cross, she gets Trudeau to admit that the threshold for a public order emergency in the Emergencies Act is the same as in the CSIS Act. And considering what has gone on before, this is a bit of a mic drop moment. My last area of question, uh, Prime Minister, is with respect to the CSIS Act and its integration into the uh, Emergencies Act. I under- So you're, you've stated 
under the CSIS Act, when CSIS determines that they are going to use surveillance on a person, they need to meet the the threshold at Section 2, correct? Yes. And that's because the surveillance of one person without other legal authority is something that is very serious and that requires a high legal threshold, correct? Now, I understand your evidence that for the purpose of the Emergencies Act, we are dealing with a different context, yes? Yes. A different purpose. Yes. And we're dealing with a different decision maker, correct? But I would put to you that when invoking the Emergencies Act, that threshold, the level of threshold of the the security threat that must be met cannot be any lower than it is when CSIS is proposing to surveil one person, that the threshold is no different. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Thank you, Prime Minister. Those are my questions. Is that, that's a fairly significant point in your opinion, is it? Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to the idea that this is a legal argument, at the end of the day, the commissioner is going to have to make his own call and the parties are going to make their arguments on it. But uh, nevertheless, it's a stunning admission from the prime minister that they are the same. And it's when put the way that it was put by the CCLA, it's hard to disagree with because the whole point of the definition of threat to security of Canada and the CSIS Act is to limit the powers of CSIS because they can spy on Canadians. Um, right, yeah. And the all the more reason to limit the power of the Emergencies Act because it goes way beyond spying on individual Canadians and allows the government to wield powers that it would never otherwise be allowed to wield. So, and, and there's things in the Emergencies Act that suggest it's a higher threshold anyways. Like, so for example, for CSIS to launch an investigation, they need reasonable grounds to suspect that there's a threat to the security of Canada. In the Emergencies Act, the governor in general requires reasonable grounds to believe. Without, these are, you know, two, these are two definitions that have meaning in law and reasonable grounds mm-hmm. to believe is a higher standard. Uh, the way, uh, the court talks about it is that suspicion is about a possibility of something existing, whereas uh, reasonable grounds to believe is about a probability. You have to have a bit more to go off of. Um, and then the other issue is that the Emergencies Act requires that there be the threat to security of Canada rise to the level of a national emergency so that there's no other laws of Canada capable of dealing with it. So it can't just be a small threat to the security of Canada. It has to be sufficiently large that it's beyond the scope of the provinces or even any other federal laws to address. Based on what you said there, and I wasn't aware of your first point, it does sound like it is a higher standard and not a broader standard, because when they kept saying a broader standard or a more broad interpretation, it sounded like they were trying to, you know, dumb it down a little bit. Well, you know, they had pretty strict rules over there at CSIS, but, you know, we've got more leeway over here with the Emergencies Act. But it doesn't sound like that at all, the way you, you just described it. I guess that's uh, – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think that – so I think the definition is the same, but then all the things around it require more for the part of the Emergencies Act than it does for the CSIS Act. Uh, and, yeah, to go to that issue of, like, the scope of what could be included under the CSIS Act definition – uh, I, I think part of that, and we did hear it from uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland, that the definition of threat to security of Canada, they're trying to say, includes economic harm, which, again, that's not, I mean, 
the words speak for themselves, I think. Threats to the security of Canada means acts of serious violence or the threat of acts of serious violence. That's not what uh, it's not what economic harm is. So there, there mm-hmm. may have been reasons to be concerned about the economic harm, but that's not that that's not what the words say. Actually, on that point, I do remember Eva Krajewski challenging Freeland on that point because she, of course, brought up the solidarity movement in Poland mm-hmm. to her and said, "Well, you know that they were actually blockading a port at that time, you know, uh, threatening the economic security." Of course. Uh, Freeland uh, wanted to point out that, you know, this was uh, an illegitimate government, et cetera, et cetera, which um, I'm sure pleased her supporters, but had me grinning from ear to ear thinking, well, you're just condemning your own government here, but at any rate. Yeah, her defense was, uh, well, that was for protest against the bad guys, we're the good guys, so the protest against yeah, us isn't yeah, the same. Exactly, that's it, you know, so, and I think there was lots of comment on Twitter that I saw where everybody was saying, nobody seems to think that they're the bad guys or nobody ever thinks that they're the bad guys. And here's a case in point. So I thought that was pretty strong as well. So your biggest highlight of the week, let's get to that first and then we can talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff or maybe another quote after that. But did you have a a big moment during that past week with the politicians besides your own cross, which we're going to get to in a minute, but (laughs) <laughs> your cross of uh, the CSIS director. Besides that, did you have uh, a big moment that you thought, well, you know, I think we, we scored a big goal here? Um, in terms of uh, in terms of some of the crosses that, well, I, I think uh, my colleague Rob Kittress's cross-examination of Anita Anand was uh, very <laughs> effective, uh, owing largely to her unwillingness to cooperate with simple questions she she mm. refused to acknowledge what cabinet solidarity requires of her uh, so just for the people at home cabinet solidarity is the principle that ministers in the cabinet have to stand together when they make a public uh well really anything to do with their position to the public so this is kind of the flip side of the rule of cabinet confidence basically they can talk in secret so they can debate and disagree with each other and then they make a decision well, the prime minister makes a decision and then in public they have to maintain uh that they have to defend it in public so it, it, it it's not a it's not a fatal point it just goes to show that all the ministers we hear have to defend the government's decision regardless of what their personal views are uh, but she didn't seem to want to agree that that is something that she has to do is that why he was making the point? Because, you know, he was he suggesting – because it came up a few times, I think, uh, a few other times, the, uh, the idea of cabinet solidarity in subsequent questioning to other witnesses. Was he trying to make the point that you're, you're basically having to do that on the witness stand? You can't express a personal opinion here? In other words, we're not going to hear what you really think? Is that what, Was that the point that he was stressing? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the same point was put to the prime minister, which he uh, quickly agreed with. Okay. Yeah. A little bit of a trap there, I would say, being set. Is it not? I wouldn't say it's a trap. I mean, it's something, it's a, it's a, it's a rule that everyone or, you know, anyone, anyone involved in the situation knows about. And so it'd be a very easy mm-hmm. to think to say that, yes, my duty as a minister is to defend the decision. And in fact, I do think it was justified. It's a, you know, you'd think right. there'd be a pretty simple answer there. Yet it seemed to really uh, trip up the uh, minister of uh, defense. Yeah. Canada's defense. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Well, I'm glad you picked someone 
a highlight from our team, of course. There were other ones. Uh, you did suggest to me one other one that uh, we should maybe talk about, and I'll play that right away. And uh, that was uh, his quote at the end of his evidence in chief, where he stated something to the effect that he wouldn't pretend that other things couldn't have done it, but this did the job. Now, here we have Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau during his examination in chief by Commission Counsel Shantona Chaudhuri. On the last day of the hearings, Friday, November 25th, a lot of attention in the mainstream media was focused on the Prime Minister's words about how he was serene in his decision. But that's a little bit of a distraction, because what he said just before that is pretty critical. Let's play it. We were able to solve the situation with it. That there was no loss of life. There was no uh, you know, serious violence. That we were able to get neighborhoods back under control, uh, border, uh, border services opened, and um, there haven't been a recurrence of these kinds of illegal occupations uh, since then. I'm not going to pretend that it's the only thing that could have done it, but it did do it. And that colors the conversations we're having now uh, with the fact that these could be very different conversations. And I am absolutely, absolutely serene and confident um, that I made the right choice in agreeing with the invocation. So there you have it from the prime minister himself. Why did you want to flag that one? Uh, it's another one of those uh, stunning admissions from the prime minister. Uh, this came at the very end of his his evidence in chief. The he got very dramatic at the end of his uh, evidence. I will say, actually, for the for the most part, the prime minister did do a uh, a surprising job of answering questions straightforwardly. But uh, he couldn't help himself at the end. He he got a bit more dramatic with the pauses and the the, the inflections, and he said this line. That I'm not going to pretend we couldn't have done it any other way, but it got the job done. But the the thing is, the Emergencies Act requires that whatever the, the situation is can't be resolved any other way. So uh, it's again at the end of the day, the commissioner is going to make the the call of what was justified and what was not. But it's it's one of those uh, those admissions from the prime minister that go right to the heart of the issue. Well, it isn't just justified. I mean, it's the fact that. He has to decide whether it could be done any other way, doesn't he? As well, essentially, that he has to he has to go to that question that Trudeau answered there. He has to say, okay, they couldn't do it any other way because I I know that part of the strategy uh, you guys, the JCCF, were going at was demonstrating the various other methods, other tools that were available. So the commissioner does have to answer that question. Yeah, absolutely, and um, we did hear some of that in uh, the the cross-examination of uh, Justin Trudeau, I guess things sometimes come around full circle where tow trucks again <laughs> became the issue. Uh, but there mm -hmm. was a, a document put to the prime minister by uh, Rob Kittredge that showed a last minute redaction had been lifted revealing that the Americans were offering tow trucks. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, it was so much like a movie script that it was almost like, I can't believe this is happening. Maybe you could just, can you give us a little inside baseball? How did that get caught? Was Rob scouring the documents? You know, what, what happened? I mean, he, he, 
it, the redaction came actually at something like 10, just around 1030 local time there while Trudeau was still on the stand. So how did, how did that get caught? I mean, it was quite amazing. So the, uh, the, the government's documents had a number of redactions for different issues. Uh, the freedom convoy lawyers brought an application to have those redactions lifted. Uh, some of the application was dismissed, but part of it was granted with respect to redactions for parliamentary privilege. So there had never before been a claim that you can have that you can redact a document on the basis of parliamentary privilege. And so the commissioner ruled that they had to lift the redaction with respect to certain documents that had been the subject of the application. Uh, given the commissioner's ruling, the Mr. Miller brought a subsequent application to have more documents uh, lifted. And basically, as there was a set of documents where the redactions were going to be lifted, the government resisted some of them. But the commissioner ruled that nevertheless, they did have to release those documents. And so they finally got released to us at uh, just before 1030, an hour into the prime minister's testimony. These three last documents come back with their redactions lifted. And among the parliamentary privilege redactions lifted, there was one redaction, and uh, you see it in the, the document and the cross-examination, that was redacted for irrelevance. And that was just sort of quietly lifted as well. And it reveals that the Americans were offering tow trucks. So for a bit of context, uh, that document is the notes of Brian Clough, who is one of the witnesses we heard from the day before. Uh, he's in the prime minister's office. And so that was, uh, in terms of how it was found, I mean, basically, yeah, Rob's next to me getting his cross-examination prepared. These documents come in. So I start, uh, I, I pull up the old version and the new version to because right. it's a 39-page document. I don't have time to read the whole thing. So just to pinpoint what's changed. Uh, and what I read, uh, Americans are offering tow trucks. I show it to Rob and his jaw dropped. And so he scrapped no his whole cross-examination, redid it based off this uh, new piece of evidence and went up with that. Really? He scrapped his old – yeah, okay. Now, you see, I had to get that on the record here. If there's going to be a movie, you know, <laughs> that's that's a key moment, right? You know, so – Okay, no, that was great. I thought that was because it, what it did it illustrated the problem that uh, Brendan Miller kept bringing up throughout the week, and we really had only the one demonstration prior to that, and that was in the testimony of Jody Thomas, National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister, said something to the point of CSIS not having the threshold, and that was revealed later as her notes became. Uh, revealed that she she actually made a notation of that, but up until Rob spotting that, you know, it, it just drove the point home. And at the very end, you know, it it was about tow trucks, which you know everybody had been talking about for like three weeks, and, and then uh, all of a sudden it it comes up at the end here in such a dramatic fashion. Uh, you know, I mean, oh, well, I was joking before that this was a towing emergency, but now I mean, like, wow. Yeah, and it worked out well with uh, Suji Chowdhury for the Canadian Constitution Foundation, who came up right after and totally unplanned. He also had something to do with redactions. And then uh, there was this great moment where the prime minister had said that we should read the CSIS threat assessment so we could understand. And then he pulls it up and it's page after page of redaction. Uh, and then we hear not only did uh, can we not read it, but the prime minister hadn't read it himself. He had just received uh, briefings on it. And uh, I got a bit of a laugh from the audience when that happened. 
Yeah, I thought that was pretty good too. I, I really enjoyed his crosses. Yeah, he was uh, he was pretty on point in the last yeah, week absolutely. as well. So I uh, I must say that I was so proud of uh, what they did here alongside the JCCF. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, great a lot of great lawyers uh, at this uh, here on all sides. Uh, you know, for all the different yeah. parties. But uh, you know, I think the the cause of freedom and liberty were well served by the different organizations that were there. Yeah, yeah, I I just wanted to slip that in uh, because you know it was uh, I don't know it made me feel very reassured mm-hmm. to see that everybody's stepping up to the plate at this very critical moment in Canadian history, as far as I'm concerned. Because you know if uh, if they didn't, and we were going to let this slide, who knows where we're going to end up in a year or so? So, well, actually, going to the last day, I was looking at Twitter quite a bit at that point, and I noticed there was a lot of praise for our lawyer, Eva Chipiak, who, as a surprise to me, stood up and delivered the cross on Trudeau and the summary remarks. And uh, yeah, everybody seemed to love it. Um, How did she get selected to do that? Uh, You know, I think Eva was made for that moment. Uh, Yeah, I think so. uh, She added... uh, the the emotional side of things very well and i think mm. uh she was the perfect person to put all that uh all all the feelings of the protesters to the prime minister the way they had been hurt by the the impact of covid restrictions on their lives and their families the way they'd been impacted by his words who then called them racist and misogynist for not being vaccinated which he denied uh and then to put their testimony to him. And then she asked that very powerful question at the end. When did you become afraid of your people? And his, she was the, you know, she was the perfect person for the job to do that. I think. Right. And actually the perfect person to actually question him about the deal, the mayor's deal as well, yeah. because <laughs> it was testified earlier. And we know for a fact that she was involved in, in working out that deal with the uh, city. And so, you know, she wasn't going to take any crap on that. I know that for sure. We also heard testimony about how, you know, in the during the convoy, she was jumping up on the side of trucks and speaking to truckers to help the police to get them to move, you know, because these, these were Polish people from Poland that uh, were driving those trucks and she speaks Polish. So, yeah, you know, we heard all this very interesting and, you know, courageous stuff about her. And then I thought it was just great. She got up at the end. The reason I was asking about why she was selected, because I expected Bathsheba to go up because I saw Bathsheba and her sort of working at the uh, the laptop. And I was thinking, oh, okay, Bathsheba is going to go up. But it was Eva, and I was very surprised. And I guess pleased, you know, uh, we've had her on this podcast before. You know, I remember when she did her first one, she was like, uh, she was a little bit nervous. And, <laughs> you know, she really, uh, well, what can I say? Picked up her game, did great, so. Yeah, absolutely. Again, perfect person for the job to uh, – and hopefully give a measure of catharsis to a lot of the protesters and people who are supporting from back home and, and who came to Ottawa to be heard, didn't get that chance. But now uh, through her, we're able to at least have those questions put to the prime minister. Yeah, I think there was a lot of satisfaction felt at least – from what I could see on Twitter, you know, she was getting a lot of accolades and lots of retweets. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the emotional element, I would guess based on, this is not a criticism of you guys, of course, but you know, you were dealing with facts most of the time, as I said, you guys were 
the JCCF was focused on tools the government should have used or could have used but prior to invoking the Emergencies Act. And then uh, Brendan was focusing on getting disclosure. So there wasn't a whole lot of emotion in there, you know, except for Brendan getting upset, of course. But uh, this, this, I thought, was like the note perfect in. And I guess we could go on about that for a long time, but I, I just – I don't know. I just I felt like it was the perfect selection, and I I was thinking, did you guys have this plan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's definitely made for that role, so it was good to see. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about was your cross exam of the uh, director of CSIS because of a little comment that you put in there. And I'm just going to play uh, the clip now, and then I want to ask you to comment on it. Uh, just, you know, take a listen to this. This is you going at it. Mr. Vigneault, uh, the CSIS Act is the home statute of your organization. So is it fair to say that CSIS has expertise in applying the statute? Yes, I would say that. Okay. And the so Section 12 requires that CSIS investigate wherever there are reasonable grounds to suspect there's a threat to the security of Canada as defined in Section 2, right? Yes. Okay. And so that just requires, it doesn't require certainty. It doesn't require reasonable grounds to believe. It's reasonable. It's just reasonable suspicion, right? To initiate investigations, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's an assessment that CSIS does day in and day out? Yes. Okay. Uh, now, as someone whose father was monitored by your organization for over 10 years until it was determined an investigation wasn't actually necessary, uh, my personal experience is that it seems that your organization is very thorough. Is that a fair assessment that CSIS is rigorous in executing its duties? Um, I'm not sure uh, the context of your, uh, the, the, previous, uh, the premise of your question, but I would say that uh, we try to be a thorough in what we do, yes. Okay, so I heard that and I was like, wow, that took a lot of guts. Um, maybe we could get you to comment on it rather than me just specifically pointing out uh, that uh, this was a son sounding like he was defending his father. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I mean, like I said, uh, my, my family was monitored for uh, – uh, about a decade by CSIS until they had called us to let us know that they were closing the investigation. Um, and I mean, I, I was the point I was trying to make is that if CSIS is going to say something's not a threat, they're not just they're not ignoring it. They they're making sure it's not a threat. It means something when CSIS is saying that. Uh, right. So. And uh, I suppose you could say there's a bit of strategy involved in that that pause that you hear from him is exactly what I was going for. I figure this is the director of CSIS. If I can trip him up just a little bit, that might make my job a little easier. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there was strategy at the moment. I mean, I I couldn't help but think, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but to me, that would have been there would have been a measure of personal satisfaction to stare down the director of CSIS itself. This is the head guy. You're saying, you know, this is what you did to my family. And uh, by the way, that's how I know you're very thorough. You know? So was there any measure of uh, satisfaction in that? Uh, yeah, I'll be honest. Of course, there was. Uh, yeah. Get a bit of pride from my father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. And uh, yeah, that was, that was one note that really stuck uh, out to me. And I really wanted to question you about it. Uh, 
point well taken as well, you know. So I thought that was pretty good. There was a lot of you just switch topics here now. There was a lot of talk online about some of the notes that came out of Christia Freeland's cross examination, particularly related to them uh, labeling the protesters as terrorists. And I've seen a lot of debate. Uh, people trying to interpret, is this the bankers asking for it? Is this Christia Freeland? How, how did you guys see that? Uh, so, I mean, at the end of the day, it's tough to know. And that's kind of a problem with some of the notes we've gotten. The notes are, someone took them down, but then they're they're noting conversation. So it's not clear whose opinion that they're noting down. Right. But one of them, it was either the deputy prime minister or the banks telling the deputy prime minister that as a strategy, the the protester group needs to be labeled a terrorist group. And of course, the that did sort of ultimately pan out because we, we heard the language that was used to describe uh, protesters. And then the actual justification for the Emergencies Act relied on the 2C definition from the CSIS Act, which CSIS refers to as the terrorism section. So that right. advice was followed in one way or another. Yeah. Um, of course, Freeland, would, Freeland was adamant that it wasn't the head of CSIS that she was speaking to uh, during that call, but she was not very clear on who it was. Brendan kept saying, oh, which Dave is it? Which Dave is it? You know, and she's like, oh, I guess I need to see my whole notebook in order to find that out. But uh, I don't, I don't think that was a particularly convincing answer at any rate. Yeah, I, I mean, we don't know who she was speaking to, some sort of a mystery Dave, but uh, it's, it's a common enough name, I suppose. But in the, in the context of the notes, it seemed that she was talking to the banks. So it, perhaps right. it was a Dave from the banks, but it's we don't know. She wouldn't give that answer, so or couldn't, one, one or the other. Yeah, I think below that there was a note with an actual name and BMO written mm -hmm. beside it that you know was definitely a banker that she was speaking to there. So presumably... These were notes taken in uh, one of the group calls. Which would, would, should make it's sense given her role as the Minister of Finance. Yeah, I think so as well, yeah. I know that some people are very, very curious because, uh, you know, I think they want to take consumer action <laughs> based on the result of their conclusion. And uh, why not? That's a right, of course, you know, so. So I guess – at the end of it, we heard the summary statements, which kind of surprised me. I thought I was done for the day. <laughs> then all of a sudden, I got to you know, record all these summary statements. And then he mentioned another phase that's coming up, and that's a policy phase. Where does it go from here? And what, do you have further involvement yourself in what's happening? Yeah. So next week, uh, there's going to be a policy phase. So each day, there's going to be two roundtables where they have a number of uh, academics and experts on different areas lined up who are going to speak about uh, different policy issues at hand, like misinformation, such as uh, how, sh like, potentially any recommendations about the Emergencies Act, recommendations about new laws to address protests, recommendations about the, you know, one thing we heard a lot about was the relationship between the political side of things and the police and to what extent they're allowed to direct the police or give them goals or strategy priorities. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be, uh, so there'll be a number of uh, round tables on various issues like that. Uh, experts for each to talk about it. 
and the parties during the roundtable can submit questions to be asked by Commission Council, uh, or afterwards we can make submissions on the policy phase as a whole. I see. So, so you won't be sitting at the table asking questions. You would have to submit them to the Commission Council then. Correct. And then uh, we can make our uh, – so, so the week after the policy phase, we'll be providing our submissions both for the policy and the factual phase of things. And uh, and then after that, it's in the Commissioner's hands, and he has a, uh, a daunting task to write basically a book in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah, don't envy that at all. Um how did you rate the whole experience? You know, I, we saw a lot of praise, of course, in the summary statements. Everybody thank this, thank that. And then the commissioner summed up by basically rolling the credits, <laughs> thanking everybody. But uh, what was your experience? I, uh, I, had the, blunt? I had the same thought of you. It was, uh, <laughs> it was like a credits experience, but um, uh, no, it was, it was an, an amazing experience. The commission had uh, an incredible task before it, especially given the timelines that it's bound under. Mm. And it's, I think, done uh, the best that it can to try and achieve that task. Commission Council have been very, uh, been very fair and effective. Uh, you know, there's some Commission Council who did a really excellent job, really trying to pinpoint uh, some of the different witnesses on in, on key aspects. Uh, the, I, I do think that there is. You pointed out earlier, which uh, Gordon Cameron highlighted for a moment, that there is an issue of transparency from the government of Canada insofar as they have a number of redacted documents. And Mr. Trowdery actually put the prime minister to it quite pointedly, though that was objected to. Will you waive the remaining cabinet confidence? Will you waive uh, Section 39, which protects that? Or will you waive solicitor-client privilege? Because they've positioned the the key explanation at the end of the day for why the Emergency Act is justified as a legal issue and then hid that behind solicitor-client privilege, which is their right. Legally, they are protected by solicitor-client privilege. However, solicitor-client privilege exists for the, for the client in that relationship, not for the, the lawyer. Uh, if I have a relationship with a lawyer and that's protected by solicitor client privilege. I, as the client can waive that and talk about whatever it is I want to talk about. And in this case, the client is the government and there's an added element here where from a, a policy perspective, sometimes the government has things that they probably do need to keep by solicitor client privilege, but there might be times. And I think this is one of them where the public's interest in transparency in requires that the government be more forthcoming that even though they can keep their answers behind solicitor client privilege so that they drop that veil they open up the black box and they show us why they made the decision that they did they're not going to do that they've they've made that quite clear uh, but and you know what despite that one that despite that issue i i think that on the whole the inquiry has been incredible. I, I think the number of exhibits that have been entered is something like 7,000. Uh, those are available publicly. Any, I don't think anyone will, but any interested member of the public could go and start reading through all of them. Uh, right. There's every, uh, every bit of every day is available on video with transcripts available for people to read through if they want. 
at the end of the day, the commissioner is going to make his call, but it's also open for each individual person to make their own individual assessment. They can see the evidence for themselves and they can see whether or not the government's explanation really is up to par or if it's not. Just going back to solicitor-client privilege for a second here. Now, the waiving of that, that, that's not necessarily a formal thing, isn't it? Is it? You know, I mean, if if a lawyer's asked, he can say, well, uh, you know, I'm I'm obligated by solicitor-client privilege. But if the client is asked, he can just talk about anything he wants. And once he talks about it, he has waived it. Is that my understanding correct here? Yeah, that's exactly it. There's no steps that have to be taken. Maybe from the perspective of cabinet waiving solicitor client privilege, maybe they have to have a meeting about it. But at the end of the day, it's the prime minister's call. So presumably it's in his hands to waive. The only thing is, and this was raised, uh, there would be um, like, for example, the director of CSIS couldn't waive that solicitor client privilege. And I think Canada tried to make that point when they re-examined him. But um, he, the client is cabinet. It's the highest level of government. It's not the officials beneath that. Oh, okay. So it doesn't apply to CSIS. Okay. It, 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 it could protect what CSIS was told when they talk about being assured about an uh, advice. I'm just saying that CSIS doesn't have the authority to waive that privilege. Mm, okay. How about, <clears throat> how about redactions? Um, you, you talked about people can go back and they can read all the documents. Um, are there going to be further redactions coming or is everything sealed off at this point? It's over. We got what we got and that's all we're going to get. The factual phase is over, um, subject to potentially a party trying to bring some kind of an application or something. Uh, and even then that would be just given the timelines, that would be difficult, but it does for the most part the the documents that are the exhibits now are what they were some unless something were someone were to try and challenge that after the fact right okay now if you were asked for your recommendations and who knows you might be i'm not sure uh this whole question of timeline now i can see the purpose of it you know having to finish the whole thing off and get the report in within a year. I think that is what is specified in the Emergencies Act in the review. Do you think that that should be changed, extended, uh, based on what you experienced at this hearing? That's an interesting question. Uh, I definitely think that the timeline exists for good reason. It's because we want to get an answer and we want to get an answer quickly. Perhaps it could be a little bit longer because, I mean, we got a lot done in a short period of time, but with a little bit more time, it could have been done a little bit more. There would have been a bit more room for flexibility, a bit more room for adding witnesses, let's say, or or hearing challenges, that kind of thing. Part of it is this, the hearings, the beginning of the hearings did get delayed. Right, Commissioner, yeah, that was through uh, illness. Yeah, illness, Commissioner yeah. Rulo had some sort of a medical issue, so that further compressed the timelines. Uh, perhaps one solution isn't to extend the timeline, but to extend the amount of time. Uh, so to step back for a bit, the way the timeline works is that the declaration of emergency happens. Uh, some point after it gets revoked, the government has a certain period of time to initiate the commission and to pick a commissioner. Uh, and then, but then that commission still has to get its report in 360 days from the 
I want to say the invocation of the act. It might be the, I might have it backwards. It might be the revocation, but it's set from then, not from when the commissioner is selected. So perhaps that might make more sense that no matter how long the government takes to pick, to get the thing started, they have a set amount of time after that to do their job. Of course, you could see them using that to their advantage as well yeah. by simply delaying the picking of the commissioner, maybe give them a set amount of time. Yeah, I couldn't help feeling that things were a little compressed. And uh, especially when, you know, they you have unredacted or documents being unredacted when the last witness is on the stand and these are questions that you want to put to him. So I think that starkly brought home the point that, you know, we were – I guess, you know, racing at that, at that moment. So. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the parties do have an obligation for ongoing disclosure. And so fulfilling that does mean releasing documents as they come in, but certainly some of the documents that came in, there's a question to be asked why they came in as late as they did. Like, uh, some of the text messages, for example, wouldn't that be something that's known right off the bat that needs to be submitted? So, uh, uh, and I think that falls on the, the shoulders of the, the federal government, who, especially considering that unlike all the other institutional parties, the OPP, the OPS, I mean, this is an inquiry, even though it may have seemed like it at one point, this isn't an inquiry into Peter Slowly. This is an inquiry into the federal government. And oh, so it's good point. It, it's, you know, why couldn't they do what the other groups could do and get their documents out in a timely manner, especially things that seem obviously important, like like text messages between ministers and other parties. Yeah, you raised the slowly issue. I happen to agree with you on that point. It did seem like there was an inordinate amount of time spent on his role in this thing. In fact, he had, of course, his own counsel there that uh, got to question all the witnesses as well. Did you think maybe that kind of thing could be hived off and done in uh, another forum that would have helped i'm not sure so out, out of out of fairness i think peter slowly should be allowed to have counsel there and to participate because i mean he was gonna he was gonna get talked about by the other parties and things were gonna be said about him he should have a chance to defend himself and to right. to, to make his pitch um personally i think some of the time allocations and priorities could have been a little bit different in terms of focusing more on uh, federal players as opposed to him. Uh, mm -hmm. That said, um, he definitely had a part to play in all this. And so his, his evidence was important, but I mean, he's the only witness who testified for two days. Yeah, I know that was actually mentioned uh, by a few people. And uh, yeah, I found it, uh, I guess not, a distraction necessarily because of course it was very personal and there's a lot of human drama in there and he did retire the day after the act was invoked i think it was the 15th or yeah. was it the 14th yeah it was the 15th yeah so yeah it came right at a critical time you know having said that uh, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to the premier of ontario because he invoked privilege did you uh, to to not go there? And of course, we uh, we didn't hear very much from his office. We heard from bureaucrats, I guess. Did you find his absence notable? Do you think he could have contributed a lot? Because we know he invoked the Ontario Emergency Act, and that was used to help clear the Ambassador Bridge, I believe. I think they used some of the powers in that. But at any rate, do you think he could have contributed anything to this? 
Did you find him notably absent? I do. I think there were questions to be asked about the province not using certain emergency powers that they ultimately end up doing under the federal rule. And given again that it's supposed to be a last resort, if you could have done something provincially, you should have done it that way. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it was probably to his detriment because other groups just made a point to highlight. Uh, so we we heard a lot during the inquiry about these tripartite meetings, these meetings between the three levels of government, federal, provincial, and municipal, and how uh, at the beginning anyways, the province was absent. But the police were having three, three-way meetings, but the at the political level, the province wasn't showing up to have that discussion. And so the uh, we heard from a few of the ministers today basically thinking that the province was trying to drag on the protest in order to make the federal government look bad and try to wash their hands of it. So if he showed up, he could have answered that allegation, but uh, he didn't do that. Right. Any other notable absences that people you would like to have seen come up? I mean, I, I was quite happy when it ended when it did because it was like a month and a half of like 12 hour days. But, you know, was there anybody else you think should have appeared before the commission? That's an interesting question. Um, I try to ask interesting questions. <laughs> You're very good at it. Um, I, I think. I don't think there's anyone as glaring as the as Premier Ford. Uh, I'm sure you could always, just given how massive this was, you could always just start extending the list to uh, to more and more people to, to get more and more sense of what happened. Like, for example, actually, maybe here's one. With the RCMP, we heard from Deputy Commissioner Zablocki, who is in charge of Alberta. We heard from uh, Commissioner... Uh, Brenda Lucky and Deputy Commissioner Mike Duhame. Uh, but this is just the very highest level of the RCMP. If we contrast that with the other police forces, we actually got several levels of uh, involvement. So like from the OPS, we heard from former chief slowly right down through the deputy chiefs to the superintendents who were sort of in charge of the actual operation. Uh, when it came to the OPP, we heard from Commissioner uh Creek, but right down to the various chief superintendents, superintendents that were, uh, and even, even, uh, I want to say the rank was inspector. Sorry if I <laughs> forgot, but we heard from people. Yeah, we did hear from, well, I don't know if we heard from, yeah, we did hear from OPS. Uh, Marcel Baudin, was, I forget uh, his rank, unfortunately, Baudin. but Baudin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was, uh, you know, that's, that's a very ground level. Uh, he, he was in charge of the PLT, which is the engagement and communication with protesters. And so we could hear from someone who had some direct involvement. Uh, by contrast with the RCMP, it was just that top level. And we got a lot of I don't knows from Commissioner Lucky, a lot of I don't remember, or I don't know. or uh, So there was, I think, a, a barrier in that sense that perhaps we could have heard more RCMP officers. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the evidence that the commissioner needs to make his decision did come out. I noted that as well, uh, that people seem to have really great memories during their testimony in chief. And when you guys got up to cross it, <laughs> their minds seemed to go blank. Uh, I'm going to suggest that one sector that I didn't hear from that I think now even more after hearing uh, Trudeau's testimony and Freeland's testimony was the banking sector. And, uh, you know, I see this online. People are very concerned. And, you know, I would be 
concerned as a banker myself that, you know, people are going to unfairly go after the sector or people they suspect as being the ones who wanted to label everybody as terrorists without having representation. And this, this to me was a notable absence uh, in the, in the whole, I guess, what do you call it? Array of witnesses, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's Would actually, like yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, especially with the way we heard about the, creation and implementation of the economic emergency order, which was the the one that allowed bank accounts to be frozen, where Finance Canada says, look, we created the power. We didn't say how it got used. That was for the RCMP. The RCMP says, hey, we just let the banks know about who was involved. We didn't tell them when to freeze accounts or when to unfreeze accounts. So they were challenged on that. And I think it came out that they given the way the law was structured, the bank would be in a pretty difficult position to get a list of names from the RCMP and not to act on it because the duty was on the bank to freeze accounts. And the the bank was protected from liability if they acted based on the act, but not the other way around. So from a bank's perspective, you get a list of names from the RCMP, you're going to start freezing accounts. Uh, But because of that dynamic, it would have been helpful to hear from the banks themselves to perhaps... uh, give their explanation and uh, if need be shift the blame the other way. Yeah. I will speculate based only on my, uh, what I heard there that the, this might come up quite a bit during the policy phase <laughs> because, you know, this is going to get, ha- this is going to have to get hashed out because going forward, the ability to turn off people's bank accounts because you don't like their protest is going to become a hot one. I think out of all the issues that's the one that's going to have the biggest implications going forward. And so I think that it would have been very helpful if we had heard from that sector. But I guess that's just sour grapes on my part. So, <laughs> uh, You know, I will say okay. uh, on the whole, though, m- these few minor gripes, uh, this was quite the experience. It was uh, an incredible thing to be a part of. It was great to see um, – well, it's great to work with a lot of really good lawyers and to learn from them. A uh, very good learning experience. Uh, but then also to to see powerful people put under the, the lens of cross-examination. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think cross-examination is one of the greatest tools for getting to truth. There's a reason Socrates used it. There's a reason lawyers use it. And to have the people from a, the whole array, provincial, municipal, federal, police, politicians, bureaucrats, uh, right up to the ministers and the prime minister himself, put under put on the hot seat, forced to answer questions, pointed questions from parties who, uh, with different interests, including those like the, the various liberty organizations, the, the Justice Center, the protesters, the CCLA, the CCF, asking very pointed questions to get at the heart of what happened. I think it was effective. I think the truth is out there for all to see that the Emergency Act was not justified. The parties will make their arguments, and uh, that'll be for Commissioner Rouleau to make his recommendation at the end of the day. Right. One last question, which really isn't, uh, I guess, towards anything, but do you now or did you then have a sense that you guys were making history as this thing was going on? Because it was very historic. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. This is uh, the Emergency Act has never been invoked. Its its predecessor was invoked only at three historic events, World War One, World War Two, and uh, and the FLQ crisis. 
So certainly this, the invocation was historic, the Freedom Convoy was historic, and this inquiry is historic, so I'm glad to have played uh, the part that I was able to. And yeah, we were very glad that you did as well. And I think on that note, we can probably uh, call an end to episode 46 of Justice with John Carpe. Adam, thanks so much for participating, and thanks for all your hard work, and thanks to all the lawyers that participated in that commission. Thanks for having me, and thanks to all the supporters that make that possible. <laughs>